It is my observation that even though we have more Bible translations than we've ever had in history, and we have more mediums of the scripture than we've ever had in history, smartphones, iPads, iPhones, online Bibles, I mean, you name it, Kindles, whatever, that the literacy rate, the scriptural knowledge level among God's people is probably the poorest it's ever been since Gutenberg. My sense is that people just don't read the scriptures and hence don't know the scriptures. And that's a tragedy because Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. And the scriptures are inspired by God and they are good for our instruction. So I want to read these to you. If you don't have a Bible, fine. If you do have a Bible, I'm not going to go slow. Let's start in Isaiah 53. And this is all preface to what I have in my heart to share with you tonight. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Note that Jesus here in this prophecy is called a man of sorrows. Matthew 23, 12, going into the New Testament here. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And you can insert herself there too. Whoever humbles herself shall be exalted, and whoever exalts herself shall be humbled. Matthew 26, verse 63. Matthew 26, verse 63. Actually, let's look at verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Other translations say, Are you not going to defend yourself against these accusations? Verse 63, But Jesus kept silent. I now look at chapter 27, verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, And Jesus did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. And then Luke 23, Luke 23, verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned Jesus at some length, but he answered him nothing. Jesus answered him nothing. He kept his mouth closed. Luke 9, back up. Luke 9, verse 23. Luke 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And if you have a Bible and a pencil or a pen, circle the words, deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24. For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And circle the words, loses his life. Loses his life. Acts 20, verse 28. 
Paul is meeting with the elders at the church in Ephesus and the island of Miletus. And he says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves from among your own selves from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them to draw away disciples after them Romans 15 verse 2 each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification verse 3 for even Christ did not please himself Jesus Christ did not please himself look at verse 14 and concerning you my brethren I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another she's speaking to the church and he's saying you have the knowledge you have the ability to admonish one another and the word admonish there means to warn to correct to reprove and he's speaking to the church 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19 for there must also be factions among you now some of the old translations say heresies and what a heresy is a heresy is not a false teaching a heresy is a division within a body that's what a faction is for there must there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you there must be divisions in your midst so that those who are approved of God may be revealed and manifested and evident among you. Very interesting passage of scripture. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And before that he talks about shipwrecks and being beaten. But he says, beyond all that, beyond the external things, there is on me the daily pressure of concern for the churches. And then 2 Corinthians 12 verse 8. He's talking about the thorn in the flesh and he says, Concerning this thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another is more important than yourselves. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Amen. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatsoever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He who loses his life shall save it. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, he's talking to the church, the sisters and brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And I want to draw your attention to that word, admonish the unruly. Some translations have warn the idle. It's a bad translation. The word unruly means disorderly. The Greek actually means being out of line. And admonish has the idea of warn, but it also has the idea of correct, reprove. And so he's telling the church to admonish the disorderly, to correct and warn those who are out of line. Second Timothy 4.9 Make every effort to come to me soon. This is the end of Paul's life. Verse 10. For Demas, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. So there was a man named Demas who was close to Paul, probably one of his co-workers or apprentices, and Demas loved this present world and left and forsook Paul. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving for you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. So when he was attacked, he didn't return fire. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He was silent in the face of accusation, but were false. 3 John 9. This is a scary passage of Scripture, if you ask me. The scourge of anybody who works with churches 3 John 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So John is talking about himself and whoever his co-workers were because he's saying us. This man Diotrephus, who loves to be first among them, the other translations say, who loves to have the preeminence, does not receive what we say. For this reason, verse 10, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, 
unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Here's an apostle saying, this guy, Diotrephus, will not receive what we say because he loves to be preeminent. And when I come, I will call attention to his deeds, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either. So he rejected the church and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So this guy basically took over the church. Diotrephus. And then Revelation 2. I was actually thinking about, I was daring to entertain the idea of bringing a message on the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and the things that Jesus said. Those are two chapters that not only do you want to read under the bed with a flashlight, but you want to have high beams on too because it's chilling. Jesus does not pull back anything. I'm not going to share on that. I've never shared on that in my life. Someday I will, but that's not the message here. But uh, I did want to bring to your attention Revelation 2.18. He's talking to the church in Thyatira. Verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. That's a good word. Praise the Lord. He's pleased with some things. But, verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate. And if you have a Bible and a pen or pencil or a crayon, you can circle the word you tolerate. You tolerate, I have this against you, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Wow. That is some heavy words uttered by the Lord. I want to talk to you tonight about the ultimate issue. And I have the distinct sense that this message is not only for those of you who are in this room, but it is also for people whom you and I have never met. Some of them may be teenagers right now. Some of them may be small children. Some of them may be toddlers. In fact, some of them may not even be born. But God has called them to His work, and I thank the Lord or the technology to capture the ministry of the word for future generations. And someday they will listen to this message. There is nothing like the spoken word of the Lord. Isaiah says it is the anointing that breaks the yoke. And in Romans, Paul said that God has chosen preaching to be the medium through which he opens blinded eyes and saves the souls of men and women. A message that is delivered straight from the throne of God can change everything. It can solve crisis. It can soften hearts. It can adjust minds. It can radically and dramatically change perspectives. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would be our messenger tonight and cause me to release the burden that is in my heart with truth, power, and clarity so that he will gain something for himself, whatever his intention is for this weekend.
the ultimate issue begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 2 we read that Jesus of Nazareth was divine, but he lived as a man indwelt by divine life. He emptied himself of his divine powers and became a human being that lived by divine life. And that divine life is dramatically different from your human nature. The nature of divine life is profoundly different from my human nature. And the behavior of the spirit is drastically different from the behavior of the flesh. And so when we look at Jesus, we're looking at a human being who is operating by something other than human nature. He's operating by divine nature. And there is no selfishness in that divine nature. The life of God is void of selfishness. I don't know if you know this, but selfishness is the root of all sin. That's its nature. Consequently, Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, did not live to please himself. In fact, his life can be characterized by benefiting others at the expense of himself. Benefiting others at the expense of himself. That, saints, is the definition of love from the New Testament perspective. Love is not a feeling. It's not sentimentality. Love is benefiting others at the expense of yourself. And during his short ministry of three and a half years, Jesus Christ was under constant pressure. I mean, it was facing him every step of the way. He faced the raging tongues of the Pharisees. He faced the deadly plots of the chief priests. He faced the antagonism of the Sadducees. The pressure that he was under was insurmountable. And we don't really see it in the New Testament if we don't look for it. But everywhere he went... There was constant, unrelentless pressure. And in every situation where he was under pressure, he reacted to the pressure according to divine nature, according to divine life, and not according to human nature or human life. He reacted in the spirit and not in the flesh. And his reactions brought the worst out in people. And there's a point there. If you react to something, particularly pressure, by divine life, the life of God in you, and not in the flesh, and not according to human nature, it will bring out the worst in people. Some people. To some it will be the savor of life, to others it will be the smell of death. And so for Jesus Christ, every day was a new pressure, every day was a new conflict, every day was a new temptation, and he was rejected everywhere he went. Everywhere he stepped, he was despised and rejected. With the exception of a little village near Jerusalem. 
And this is why the scripture says that he was a man of sorrows. And I'll say it again. If you look at Jesus carefully, you're watching how a human being reacts to pressure according to living by divine life and not. You're looking at how divinity reacts to situations. And the pressure that Jesus Christ constantly faced and endured came at its climax at Gethsemane. And there he confronted his fate. It was a bloody ordeal in the form of a crucifixion. And there in Gethsemane, in that garden, he faced the blackest, the most frightening, the most dreadful outcome that a human being could ever face. The shame and pain of being crucified. And he had a choice before him in that garden. It was either to be willing to lay his life down and allow himself to be crucified at the hands of sinful men or reject the cross and fight. And I want you to know something. Even though Jesus Christ was divine and even though he was God, he was also completely human. And no human being wants to be crucified. He did not want to be crucified. That's why he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Point. His will was not to be crucified. But he said, not my will, and thank God he said, I submit my will to your will. And he accepted his fate. And once he succumbed to a bloody crucifixion in the garden, once he settled that battle, he was taken before the Sanhedrin. And when he was in that room, before those leaders, he set a new standard for reacting under pressure. False witnesses were brought in to condemn him. Bold-faced lies were told his words were twisted and distorted. To make it all worse, he faced it all alone. His disciples had checked out. And I know that his heart was pounding. Because he knew everything that he was hearing were lies. And as a human being, his natural reaction was to defend himself. As a human being, his natural reaction would be to become enraged and start responding to the lies. But when the high priest pressed him and said, are you going to defend yourself? The scripture says Jesus was silent. And when he was brought before Herod and he faced accusations, false accusations, he was silent again. And the same thing when he was brought before Pilate, he answered not a word. Only when the high priest adjured him by the living God did he give a short answer and then divinity was silent again. And Peter reminds us in his first letter of how Jesus behaved under pressure and then he says, exhorting us to follow in his footsteps. Point. Human life defends itself. Human life rationalizes itself. Human life vindicates itself. Human life gets angry and wants vengeance. 
and human life will also use religious vocabulary and religious concepts to justify its selfishness. And I'm speaking to all of us. Get a good look at the flesh, saints. That's what the flesh does. But divine life remains silent. But there's more. All of his work, everything that he had built for those three and a half years was destroyed at the cross. His whole ministry came to an end. An abrupt end. And he had no guarantee that he was going to be resurrected and that his ministry was going to last. You say, well, that's not true. He knew the scriptures and the scriptures said he will rise again on the third day. And he even said that before his death. That's true. But at the moment of crucifixion, you have to remember, he was human as well as divine. Nobody had ever penetrated the veil of death and come out alive on the other side. He was gambling. His whole ministry, everything he had built for those three and a half years, which was intense, hung in the balance. And we know that he questioned because he said at the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not all. For those three black days, the men and women who had put their full trust in him lost everything. They trusted that he was the Messiah. And there he was hanging on a cross and there was now no longer any kingdom. There was no gospel. There was no Lord. There was no Savior. It was finished. It was over. You remember the conversation that he had in disguise with the two disciples from Emmaus. We thought he was the one. And they crucified him. They had hoped and gambled on him. And ended up disappointed. But thank God that's not the rest of the story. Praise the Lord. Because Jesus was obedient unto death, God the Father raised him from the dead and exalted him. Because he humbled himself and laid his life down, listen now, he humbled himself and he laid his life down and he lost and he gambled. God the Father raised him up and then he turned around and he said to you and me, if you will come and follow me, you must deny yourself. You must lay your life down. You must lose and follow me. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him, he bids her to come and die. Tarsus also understood the ultimate issue. When Paul began his ministry of raising up communities, Christian communities throughout the Mediterranean world, he was slandered everywhere he went. Not just by the unbelieving Jews, he was slandered 
by Christian people from the church in Jerusalem. And if you read 2 Corinthians 11 and you read this long list of all of the hardships and sufferings he endured, beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, hunger, thirst. Beyond that, he said, dangers from false brethren. The greatest pain that that man received, beyond the blows that hit his back and left it looking like hamburger, was the betrayal of the people he served. Was the betrayal of his own whom he thought were brethren. Jesus had his Judas and Paul had his Demas and he had people from the church in Jerusalem who slandered him and tried to undermine his work everywhere he went. They followed him, literally followed him. When he was referring to the thorn in the flesh, I'm convinced he was referring to the one of the men who's the ringleader from the church of Jerusalem that actually followed him wherever he went and brought persecution and then came to those churches that he had planted. He poured his sweat, blood, and tears into those people. Left them alone, vulnerable. All alone. Only to have these Christians from Jerusalem come and rip him to shreds trying to subvert and supplant his own work. And that's why at the end of his long list of sufferings he said beyond all of these external things what comes upon me daily is the pressure the care of all the churches the stress over these precious expressions of the bride of Christ there was no guarantee he had no idea if his labor was in vain because they could have been ripped at the seams by selfish and arrogant and self-promoting men who despised him. And they would go into those churches that he planted and they would trash him, they would lie about him, but would fabricate, twist, distort his words. Read Galatians, the first three chapters. Read 1 Corinthians. Read 2 Corinthians and you will see letters penned by a broken apostle to churches that he had fathered who are being deceived. Deceived. And that's why he often said in his letters, be not deceived. Be not deceived. Sisters and brothers, we are all susceptible to deception. Most of the letters in the first century were penned by apostles who were writing to churches who were neck high in deception. A constant problem among God's people in the first century was that they confused the spirit and the behavior of the spirit with the flesh and the behavior of the flesh. I'm going to say that again. A constant, consistent problem in the first century was that they confused. God's people confused the work of the spirit with the work of the flesh. In other words, they would call the flesh the spirit and they would call the behavior of the spirit the flesh. It was all upside down. Remember I told you, divine life reacts completely differently than human life. The behavior of the Spirit is dramatically, profoundly different from the behavior of the flesh. And the deception was to confuse the two, and God's people were confused. And that problem is still with us today, saints. 
the root is a lack of spiritual discernment. And you know where that comes from? A lack and an unwillingness to deny ourselves. For when we are unwilling to die, to lay our life down, we are open for all kinds of deception. And we can't tell the flesh from the spirit. In Acts 20, Paul warned the elders at Ephesus. He said, savage wolves will come from without, not sparing the flock. But then he made these chilling words, even from among you will rise up men who will speak perverse things and deceive, drawing disciples after themselves. It happened in Galatia, it happened in Corinth, and it happened in Ephesus according to Timothy and 1 John, those letters. Paul lived in the presence of a cross. He faced loss over and over and over again. As Kipling once said, the poet, if you can watch the things that you had given your life to broken and stoop and with worn out tools build them again, If you can lose and then start right over again from the beginning and not breathe a word about your loss, then you'll be a man, my son. That poetic word was so powerful I almost (laughs) lost my legs and fell. Thank you, Kipling. Paul understood the ultimate issue. He knew how to deny himself. He knew how to lay his life down. He knew how to lay the churches down. He knew how to take his hands off. He knew how to gamble. Not knowing if there would be a resurrection after he died. He said, I have suffered the loss of all things. And that included the churches who he loved and served so dearly. And brothers and sisters... The Lord is looking for a people who understand the ultimate issue. In this hour, in this day, He's looking for a people who are willing to deny themselves. He's looking for a people who are willing to lay their lives down. He's looking for a people who are willing to lose and not fight and not win for themselves. Now, for the Lord's house, is a different matter. There are so many ministers today, and I rub shoulders with ministers all the time. In the season I'm in, I speak in a lot of conferences, and I get to know a lot of these guys firsthand. And some of them are precious, beautiful saints and servants of God, and they're better Christians than I am. But so many of them, they don't know how to lose. They don't know how to lay their lives down. They don't know how to die. They've never been broken. They've never been crushed. And they're dangerous. They will defend themselves at the drop of a hat. They don't know what it means to be silent. They don't know how divinity reacts to pressure. They will attack those who slight them at the drop of a hat they're unbroken they don't know how to lose they don't know how to die and they're out there serving 
the kingdom of God with one hand and destroying God's people with the other. None of these men that I'm talking about were ever in community long enough for the Lord to temper, adjust, break, transform them. Some of them, when things got hot, they left. They ran away. And we have not so learned Jesus Christ. I'm talking about people who are full of ego and full of pride. And when they are under pressure, the flesh gets exposed. And there are some in this room who may have a call of God in their life to put their hand to the plow. And there are some listening to this message whom God has called. And I would say to you, you need to understand the ultimate issue. You know, the restoration of the church hangs on the ultimate issue. Will you deny yourself? Will you learn how to lose? Will you learn how to die? Will you learn how to give it up and lay it down? Now for some people, denying yourself means that you will have some backbone and you will not tolerate those like Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. I have this against you for you have tolerated this woman who is deceiving my bond servants. He said she was leading them astray. You tolerated. Church of Corinth was guilty of this. For others, denying yourself means being silent in the face of correction. Not defending yourself. Or worse, or better, being silent in the midst of false accusation. Saints' divine life reacts differently than human life. The spirit reacts differently than the flesh. And the only way that we can discern the difference if we're willing to lay it down, then we have eyes to see. If we're willing to lose and we're willing to die, the Lord gives us eyes solve and we can see clearly. Understanding the ultimate issue and denying yourself means letting go of your pride. Being willing to be wrong. Being teachable. Being humble enough to receive input, adjustment, even reproof from your brothers and sisters. It means laying it down. It means being a person who knows how to carry the spirit of a lamb. In the church, I don't know if you realize this, those of you who are new, but in the church, eventually everyone gets exposed. Your flesh will event. You can hide it for a long time. You can cover it up. You can clothe it. You can make it so that you smell religious. But eventually, there's going to be pressure. And that's when things are unveiled. And in that day you have a choice. When what is unbroken in your life is made manifest, you have a choice to deny yourself and live by the life of Christ or react in the flesh. But when you deny yourself, and mark my words here, 
you'll be waiting in total darkness for a resurrection that may not come. But know this, you will be gambling on a God who raises the dead. Praise the Lord. The restoration of the church hangs on the ultimate issue. There's a price to pay if the Lord is going to get what He wants. And once you have paid the price, and I speak to all of you in this room and everyone who's listening to this message, once you have paid the price, there will come a new crop of young believers, brand new to the body, brand new to body life. And when they go through struggles and conflicts and questions and confusion and challenges, because you yourself were willing to lay your life down and you watch the Lord raise you up three days later, you will be able to minister life to them so that Jesus Christ can win in their life. The scars that you will bear will be fruit for others. I I will just be very candid as I have watched the passing parade for the last 25 years. It's very easy for me to lose hope. I have watched churches torn asunder because some were too passive to respond and they tolerated those who were harming the church. Too afraid to correct, too afraid to confront, too afraid to rebuke, not willing to lay their lives down until all that was left was ashes. And I have watched Christians turn into the most vicious creatures, wreaking havoc on God's people, all because their feelings were hurt. All because their expectations weren't met. You can measure the size of any man or woman by how they react when their expectations aren't met. I have seen the Judases come and go. I have seen the Demases come and go and I have met Diotrephus and watched him come and go. It's easy for me to lose hope. But I stand here tonight hopeful because somewhere I read but I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm hopeful because somewhere I read no weapon formed against you shall prosper. For this is the heritage of all the Lord's servants. I'm hopeful because somewhere I read there must be factions among you so that those who are approved of God may be made manifest. I'm hopeful because somewhere I read that my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made manifest in weakness. And somewhere I read that the bride will make herself ready. And she will be holy and without blemish, reflecting the glory of the Lord.